It's that time. Your fix is here. College football is a year-round discussion with these two. Here's J.C. and Morgan. Mike Morgan of ESPN and J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports have you covered. Beginning right now. It is a very special installment of J.C. and Morgan. We welcome you once again to your favorite college football podcast and ours, for that matter. We're a little bit biased. You are not, and we appreciate all of you, the thousands that tune in each and every week. He is J.C. Sherbert at 24-7 Sports, Mike Morgan, ESPN, SEC Network. Uh, This is kind of a, a special one for us. We're not wearing tuxedos, full disclosure. I don't think I've ever worn a tuxedo other than a wedding. Don't own one. Uh, have rented a couple times, but uh, so regular guard. But this is number two hundred. JC, we hit we hit a milestone here today. We talked so much about how this started off as kind of the little engine that could, and as we you know continue to evolve, and as the podcast world continues to become much more mainstream, it's no no longer niche. Like people of all ages just expect to be able to listen to the content they want to and when they want to. So if we will watch the popularity, not just of our podcast, we're not patting ourselves on the back, but as I've talked about a number of times, I I get to the point now where I don't care what I'm doing. If I'm on a plane, if I'm on a car ride, if I'm at the beach, if I'm at a pool, uh, if I'm in traffic, I put out a podcast. I don't, I don't listen to a lot of other stuff, and there's so many good things out there. Um, I don't think there are a ton of great college football podcasts. Full disclosure, I think I think that room can be improved, and and here we are, and uh, a number of you have chosen us. So thank you for that, and uh, JC, number 200. I know you, like me, have a lot of other things on your plate during the course of the year, but we've managed to carve out time and do this, and uh, you've been tremendous. And uh, what people don't realize is – while this may sound pretty good, like we don't have full-time producers and, uh, you know, people, uh, technicians and other people working behind the scenes to kind of uh, prop this up a little bit. Uh, you do a lot of the uh, the great work that makes this go. So uh, kudos to you and uh, kudos to hitting 200. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty happy that we made it to 200, Mike. I think that's a tremendous milestone for this podcast and, uh, you know, seeing as how, when we started it, uh, I was trying to sneak into the uh, the radio station studio in Greenville, South Carolina, to get it done, and you were on the phone, <laughs> <laughs> and and we did it that way, and then we kind of evolved into the uh, the Skype what, what era, it, the Skype era, which was uh, hit or miss. Woo. To be honest, sometimes Skype was uh, not our yeah. friend at times. Skype and was then, not our friend, and then Zoom comes along, and uh, here we Game go. Changer. Here we are. Here we yeah. are. So. Uh, it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, Zoom has been a game changer um, for so many people in so many uh, walks of life. And uh, again, this is I, I I've done a lot of radio over my my career, and I, I I'm an audio. I'm very, uh, for lack of a better term, anal when it comes to sound and audio quality. Uh, we finally have this is this is studio quality stuff. I was in. Um, doctor's office the other day and they were commenting on just how crisp the uh the podcast sounded and they couldn't believe like we didn't record that in a studio like an actual radio studio or your professor but that you don't have to do that anymore the technology is such that 
there you are in Chicago. Here I am in Atlanta, and we continue to uh, uh, to rock and roll. And I appreciate all the sponsors over the years. Of course, one of the main ones, Blue Delta Jeans, BlueDeltaJeans.com. Check them out for the best-fitting jeans that you will find on the planet. And now they've added all kinds of uh, goodies from belts to hats and, and anything you can think of. Uh, our friends over there at Blue Delta in Oxford, Mississippi. I did get a... We'll get to our mailbag segment later on. I did get a um, uh, an email uh, last week. We we he's like you guys. I mean, I love the sub story, but I wanted I, you guys are the best college football podcast. I want to hear you talking college football. You spent uh, however many minutes on the sub, Danny in Knoxville. Danny, we love you, and uh, yes, we will answer your question on on the Vols. I have um, some strong opinions uh, on how. Tennessee is going to fare this year you might if you didn't like the sub talk you might not like that either um but we'll we'll discuss that but no I take that as a as a compliment a little constructive criticism perhaps but also a compliment they want to get right knee deep uh but other people love the other things that we do here whether it's the five and dime movie segment um or just some other random conversation which which by the way before before I get too deep into this Gary Barnett is going to join us in about 20 minutes, Gary Barnett, who I had a chance to work with years ago on national radio, calling college football games across the country. Um, Barnett has a unique distinction, JC. If if you go back and you look, and people know the name, I think most college football fans are like, oh yeah, Gary Barnett, Northwestern Colorado. And, and then sometimes time, we just forget. But think about this. In 1995, Gary Barnett led Northwestern to a Rose Bowl, the first one they'd been to in since the 1930s. Okay, they went 10 and two. They went eight and zero in the Big Ten. Yes, that's the league with Michigan and Ohio State. Even back then, in '96, they followed it up with nine and three, and seven and one, and so they played in the Rose Bowl and in the Citrus Bowl in back to back years, which for Northwestern is just unheard of and and hasn't been really duplicated. Coach Fitzgerald has had some really good pockets of time, but hasn't done anything like that since. So he's the last coach to lead Northwestern to a Big Ten championship. And then he goes to Colorado. And we did kind of a deep dive on Colorado football last week. I just happened to be in Boulder this past weekend, a little vacation uh, with the wife. We did Boulder. We did Denver. We did Estes Park. And I'm walking the campus and I'm going to Folsom Field. First time I've been to Folsom since I, I called a Colorado game back in like 2012. It's a beautiful campus and it's, it's a great venue. But I, I honestly, the whole time I'm walking around, I'm thinking, is Deion Sanders really like roaming these streets in Boulder? Is he really? the? It's it just it still seems like a. Uh, a weird fit, um, but it's fascinating. Like I'm all for it. I, I just, you, if you've been to Boulder, you know that like prime time and Boulder is a, it, it's like when you put that in the pot of gumbo, that's a little bit unique. Um, but then he goes to Colorado and a 10 win season in 2001, a nine win season in 2002, an eight win season in 2004. So he's really, he's the last coach to have a winning record at Colorado. That to, that 2004 season was the last winning record uh, for Colorado football. And I'm not, I'm not looking at the COVID year. They, they played like six games. The Pac-12 was basically – they were the last ones in, and it was kind of a joke of a season. But, uh, yeah, they haven't 
he he knows that program inside out. And remember, now he was the assistant under McCartney during the glory years, so he knows the the secret sauce of what worked at Colorado. Can it work again? We'll get his thoughts on that and a number of things. Gary's a really sharp guy, was a great offensive mind during his time as a coach, and is now the analyst on uh, Colorado football radio. So we'll we'll get to him later on. Um, one other, th- I don't want to, I don't want to go. Well, yeah, let me let me get this in now because I don't I don't want to rush it. Uh, sad news yesterday. It, it's always shocking when anybody the age of thirty five passes, but Ryan Mallett who was a, a, a sensational quarterback at Arkansas. He transferred from Michigan he, after his freshman year. He goes to Arkansas. He throws for 3,600 yards one year, 3,800 another year, all SEC quarterback, leads Arkansas to a Sugar Bowl in 2010. They go 10-3, and three, breaks every passing record, first-round draft pick. Now, it, it didn't work out in the NFL for whatever reason. Most – I have a theory on that, JC. I mean, he was 6'7". How many quarterbacks over 6'5 do anything in the NFL? It's very, very little. I mean, it started to me with Dan McGuire, Mark's brother, who was 6'7", a phenom out of San Diego State. Didn't work out. Um, just Osweiler, he was out of the league quickly. There's just not a lot of quarterbacks that height that, that work out. But anyway, he, he, he drowned in Destin. I was trying to get the details. He was on a sandbar. There's so many of, of, of the people listening. If you're in the South, you've been to Destin. Right. Or if you, you've been to that part of the the beaches in Florida and heck, you know, we've got listeners all over the country. You might have been you've probably been to Destin anyway. Uh, you don't hear about a lot of drowning deaths in Destin. So it's a little bit you, that's one of those stories. You see it and you're like, wait, what? But um, anyway, that's uh, that happened. And it was shocking news it was trending all over the Internet, obviously. So thoughts and prayers to the uh the Mallet family has uh, clearly uh, passed along uh, way, way too soon. Yeah, I remember covering him as a recruit um, in my early years at Rivals.com. I think we ranked him fourth in the country. I had very few arms uh, were like Ryan Mallet's. Uh, Matt Stafford, maybe, as far as just pure arm strength. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the kid that's going to play for Tennessee this year, Joe Milton, who came along much later. Uh, he had a howitzer as well, but, you know, it, it looked like he had kind of, you know, I, when, when he picked Michigan, Mike, and he's from Texarkana, uh, I felt like he was a better fit for what Michigan does, pro-style offense, drop back, eye formation, that kind of thing, play action. Uh, and I thought he made the right choice. Uh, Houston Nutt was at Arkansas at the time. Um, then I believe that's when they, they transitioned to uh, to Petrino after Nutt. And uh, he came back home, and obviously that was a great fit. <laughs> and he, uh, I still remember watching him play in person several times, and uh, he just lights you up in that offense and uh, had great years and they had great teams, and it didn't work out in the pros for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, drowning in Destin, that sounds uh, – that's rare. Uh, it's ironic because my fiancé and I were talking about wanting to go to Destin at some point pretty soon because one of our friends just got back from there. and. Um, you know, he was coaching high school football. So uh, not only did the college football world at large lose a player and and someone that was certainly worthy of all the praise he got, uh, some high school kids lost their coach. And uh, that's sad. And somebody lost a son, somebody lost a father, all that good stuff. So it's, uh, it's a sad day. And certainly thoughts and prayers go out to the Mallet family and Razorback Nation and yeah. um, Whitehall High School where he was coaching. 
Yeah, Whitehall uh, High School in Arkansas. He was preparing for his second year as the head coach of Whitehall. I want to correct something I said. He went in the third round. He was projected at some point as a first-round pick and uh, for whatever reason slipped to the third, like some of the unpredictability of quarterbacks in the NFL draft. Uh, but he certainly had a first-round arm talent. Like He was a ridiculously uh, talented deep ball thrower. He had, as you coined it, a, a howitzer. And again, you know, you, you look at that final year, 3,800 yards, 32 touchdowns, leading Arkansas to a Sugar Bowl and a, a number 12 finish in the top 25. And you talk about Arkansas, and that was obviously the high water mark at that point. And then Petrino had it going, and then Arkansas hasn't been the same since. And then, you know, you, you, you look at what Arkansas has ahead of it. And that's not to, to say anything negative about Sam Pittman. I think Sam Pittman's done some great things in Fayetteville, but you, it's one of those. We talk about this often. Um, the, the the phrase JCI used, the high water mark. It's hard to convince a fan base when they're around for the high water mark that that shouldn't be the norm, right? So if you're if you're going to like a quote unquote BCS bowl game, that's kind of an antiquated term. Well then, fan the fans are like, well, we should we do this do this more often? Of course, Arkansas has deep deep history. If you go back a ways, winning a national championship with Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson, and you know the old Southwest Conference days, Arkansas was a ridiculous power and Broyles, and I mean you got some you got some heavyweight uh, stars and and big time names that have rolled through Fayetteville, but for the for the younger fans because so much of that happened before people like you and I were born and certainly a lot of our listeners were born that it's hard to convince you that okay well we shouldn't at least be what we were under Petrino and Vanderbilt shouldn't be under if James Franklin did it mm-hmm. why can't that every every other coach if Steve Spurrier won 11 games three years in a row at South Carolina why why can't we be more of a powerhouse and and you could just go down the line every fan base gets a piece of it, a taste of it, and you think, well, that should be the norm. Why can't we do that on a more regular basis? Uh, think of what Florida fans are thinking right about now. It's like you win three national titles in the span of 15 years, and you're playing for SEC titles every year, and now you look up at Georgia, and it seems like a chasm between what Georgia has and what Florida has. Uh, Tennessee had to go through this, and maybe they're out of it now, but Tennessee – after Phil Fulmer went through 15 years of just soap opera type news and very little success on the field. And they're going to be asking themselves, well, why in the heck can't we be playing for national championships again? Um, Anyway, that's a roundabout uh, tangent about how fans might feel, but it it got me to thinking about Arkansas football, just on the the mallet news, which again, certainly don't want to take away anything from that. It's, it's just sad and shocking to hear this, this look in the, in the news cycle, it happens all the time, JC. And it, it 35 is too young for anybody to go, but for some reason we think athletes, former athletes are invincible, right? Like, you know, an athlete should live like a hundred. And you certainly don't expect a drowning story, but, I go back to Joe Delaney when that news broke out when when we were kids after his great rookie year with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he was a great college running back. Um, there's something about drowning stories to me that are also very shocking, and I'm one of those. I love the beach, and I probably test the limits a little bit too much going out deep in the water during <laughs> waves because I love that, but uh, it can happen to anybody, uh, even if you're a great swimmer. Um, sad stuff sometimes happens at the ocean. 
Exactly. And it's, uh, you know, rib tides, things like that. Uh, heck, they have those in, the, in Lake Michigan. There's all kinds of uh, warnings about stuff like that. And all. I, I don't always test it in the deep waters, Mike. I, I'll go splash around a little bit. <laughs> You're uh, like you knee know. high is all you know, I need. I'm like, you know, that's, that's good. But uh, yeah, getting back to Arkansas, I, I, I think uh, if you look at that program, they they really benefited. They, they're kind of like a tale of two halves when you talk about their experience in the SEC. I think they really benefited when they when they got put in the West, and the West was just chaotic. Uh, you know, you had Alabama cycling through coaches all the time. You had Auburn uh, with Terry Bowden, and then they went backward, and then Tuberville built them back, and Auburn was kind of LSU prior to 99 when Saban got there was a disaster. Uh, Ole Miss, Mississippi State had Mississippi State was going through its glory years at the time, and so Arkansas comes into the league, and you know, heck, they 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 between ninety two and 06, they won that division three times, played for three SEC championships under uh, once under Danny Ford, and then once twice under Houston Nutt. Um, and, and and I think though, as the as the tide shifted. And as LSU became a solid national power every year, as Alabama came back roaring under Saban, as Auburn has had, uh, you know, success under Malzahn and, and the Chiswick year and, you know, Ole Miss. Now I think you, you talk about teams in high watermarks, you know, well, Ole Miss got there under Freeze. Well, Lane Kiffin's kind of doing a lot like Hugh Freeze. His success is kind of there, so he's kind of backing that up. That division in A&M comes in. That division got brutal. Uh, I think where the new format's going to help Arkansas is they're going to just start instead of them having to go play Bama every year and beat their right. head against the wall and, mm-hmm. and and then have an East powerhouse. You know they're going to get to go back to the days where they played Texas and Texas A and M every year and they had pretty good success against those guys. You know, uh, and then Oklahoma, believe it or not, Arkansas and Oklahoma, even though they border, they haven't played a whole lot. Uh, Oklahoma's right there, so so and Missouri's right there, so they're going to start playing more frequently teams in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and and if there is, if there's hope, if I'm sitting there hope, because it, it sounds daunting, the 16 team conference, one through 16, you know, if you're Arkansas and anybody really, but, you know, I, I think getting back to sort of what you did when you were, who you played when you were consistently successful, um, call it mental or, or, or otherwise, you know, they, they, they believe they should beat A&M in Texas every year. They believe they should beat Missouri and Oklahoma. And so, um, you know, I think, I think if, if any, any of the schools that aren't the big brands uh, benefit from, from the new uh, setup in the league, it's Arkansas because it kind of takes them back to, you know, the old days when they were, you know, I mean, they played a game against Texas one year and they called it the best game of the game of the century, something like that. Um, so they do have tradition and, Maybe they tap back into it now that they've had they've got some more uh, old school familiarity instead of you know beating their heads against the wall to the teams with the teams to the east. I think they're like almost everybody in the West. You could put Ole Miss, Mississippi State in this category. They're just happy the divisions are gone mm-hmm. because there's no <laughs> debating the fact the West has been the varsity and the East minus Georgia and a few blips here and there from other programs has been the JV in comparison. Now we're talking top to bottom, one through seven. One through seven, the West has been a Goliath compared to the East. And until Georgia went on their recent run, the East couldn't win in, win in Atlanta. I mean, it, it was every year the West was winning a championship. With that going away, that is going to lighten up the schedule. It has to. No matter what random 
a format we're, we're going to evolve into over time. We're not going back to divisions. That much is certain. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Western teams like Arkansas, who's got, who's got every year to look at that schedule and go, really? Mm-hmm. Alabama, Auburn, LSU again. Now an A and M at time like again. Can we can we get a little more Missouri in here? Can we get a little more Vanderbilt in here? Like it's it's that only benefits those those teams from the West, so they will not miss the divisions. Um, hey, got to mention real quick. So this this week I I filled in on uh, six eighty, the fan prominent uh, sports station in Atlanta, and as I'm driving to the uh the, it was a remote at a golf course they're like oh by the way you're going to be interviewing lawrence taylor in the four o'clock hour um it was it was an interesting interview lawrence played 18 holes of golf let's just say lawrence had a good time on the golf course so you you never know what exactly what you're walking into in that, that situation but uh it got a few questions in there <laughs> might have had to hit the dump button a couple of times but you know it's it's all it's all good in the name of of live radio uh, but it got me doing a deep dive. So we talked mainly about his career in the pros. And, of course, you're talking about a Hall of Famer. You're talking about a guy who was an MVP. Think about this. He won the NFL MVP as a linebacker. The NFL MVP as a linebacker. But that was in an era that had Joe Montana and Dan Marino and all kinds of talented running backs. He was the best player in the game at linebacker. I mean, he redefined the position. And, again, you know, you and I were younger when he played. But we, I think we were both old enough to realize, oh, my God, this guy is just different. He was the ultimate game record. Um, but I'm not old enough to remember his college career. And, and so I, I wound up – I knew he played at North Carolina. I wound up doing a deep dive on that. He was the 1980 ACC Player of the Year. But he told us during the interview, he's like, my, my, my number one sport was baseball. I want to be a, a major league baseball player. And if you go back to that era before football and basketball really surpassed baseball, there's a lot of elite athletes that'll tell you I, I, baseball was my number one. And I just wound up going into football or basketball, but he wanted to play baseball. And finally they got him to start playing organized football at 15. This, this guy didn't play organized football till 15 years old. He winds up uh, playing at high school in Williams, Williamsburg, Virginia, and um, he was not that highly recruited, JC. If you were doing your thing back in the day, he might have been a two-star guy. He winds up going to North Carolina. You remember the head coach of the Tar Heels in in the late Dick, 70s? Dick Crum, I think. You, you're exactly right. See, this is why Which you is are. an awesome name. It is a great name. I would have like gone by Richard name. if I were him, but that's okay. Yeah, Dick Crum. <laughs> no relation to Harry Crum of John Candy fame. Um, that is that is not in the Five and Dime segment today. But Dick Crum was the coach. And North Carolina football was just, you know, kind of rolling along. Well, they get LT in 1980 his last year. They go 11-1. and one. They go 6-0 and oh in the ACC. They win the Blue Bonnet Bowl. Then LT's the number two pick. Then at 81, the Tar Heels are 10 and 2. And I, oh my goodness, here we go. We're not just a basketball school. And then the bottom falls out until they hire Mac Brown in 1988. I've forgotten yeah. a lot of that story I, I, yeah. until I did the deep dive. UNC was a top three, top five team in the early part of the 80s. And, uh, gosh, I remember Clemson won the national championship in 1981. And, that that game was epic. It was ten to eight. I think Clemson won it ten to eight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think North Carolina got a safety and got the eight. But uh, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Okay, so so here's a little recruiting 
moist, you know, tasty nugget for you. That's coastal Virginia, Southeast Virginia, the 757 Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach, whatever you want to call it. It's not a surprise that Lawrence Taylor came out. That that area produced Lawrence Taylor, and he was under-recruited. Go back and look at all the first-rounders Virginia Tech put out through the years. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, and you know, of course, everybody knows Michael Vick was from there and all right. that. But there's a lot of guys the Hokies snuck across the state. <laughs> and yeah. uh turned into monsters that is a that is that is a place where you can go find players uh you know and back then i mean if you're if you don't start playing until you're 15 i mean you you know they didn't, they didn't have all this eighth graders on the radar stuff and stuff like that but uh great piece of recruiting by north carolina uh i think to um uh to you know get him in the boat back then and and turn him into what he is but he is absolutely he was absolutely the terror all right, so Mike, I guess we got to take a break because we got yeah. Gary Barnett coming up on the other yeah, side. Yeah, we'll take a take a quick time out here. Uh, great college football coach, now analyst for the Colorado Radio Network, Gary Barnett, will join us on the other side. Stay tuned. More JC and Morgan coming up after I stress a quick, quick time out. Hey, this is Mike Morgan, and like many of you, I love staying active. It makes me feel better. It helps me enjoy a better life. But whether you're a world-class athlete or someone just keeping the dream alive like me, you'll want to make sure you have someone who can handle the injuries that are going to arise. That's where the world-renowned Dr. Michael Hatrack of Synergy Sports Wellness and Synergy Release Sports come into play. He's been my guy for nearly a decade, and he has served thousands of people, including over 400 NFL players over a career that spans 47 years. Yeah, he's that good. And his staff's personalized biomechanical treatments and therapies can handle it all. Back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. We all know the injuries, but few know the solutions the way Dr. Hatrack and his terrifically trained staff do. I've seen others. No one delivers the results the way they do. That's why people from all over the country come to Synergy's two Georgia locations, Buckhead and Alpharetta. Dr. Hatrack has trained a team of chiropractors in his proprietary technique that has been proven to yield life-changing outcomes from professional athletes to the Joe Schmoes of the world like, well, me. Check out the website to set up an appointment today, SynergyReleaseSports.com. That's Synergy with an S, ReleaseSports.com. You can also find a link for them on our website, JCAndMorgan.com. Let the incredible staff at Synergy take care of you so you can reach your wellness goals. Hey, folks, want to tell you about our friends at Titan Construction Group really quick. They're a mid-Atlantic-based general contractor, specializes in retail, restaurant, and office construction. TCG strives to separate itself from other general contractors by adding value every step of the process. From project budgeting to estimation, value engineering to construction, they focus on those relationships and not the transaction. Titan builds partnerships one project at a time. Among their clients are Starbucks, Crumble Cookie, uh, Blake Pizza, Home Goods, 15 plus years experience based in Midlothian, Virginia, and contracted in Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So get on their website, TitanCGInc.com. That's TitanCGInc.com. Get in touch with Brad if you're in need of a general contractor that focuses on going above and beyond for their clients. That's Titan Construction Group, a proud sponsor of the JC and Morgan podcast. All right, back with you here on JC and Morgan. JC Sherbert, Mike Morgan with you. And again, we've been really fortunate to have some terrific guests here. A lot of former players, uh, sometimes current coaches, and now a, a former coach and player for that matter. Not a bad wide receiver back in the day at uh, Mizzou, but 
most of you, when you hear the Gary, the name Gary Barnett, you'll think of his time, uh, the historic runs at Northwestern, uh, great run at Colorado that we talked about in the first segment. And uh, Gary joining us now. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? Doing great. So the, the last time you and I saw each other was back for a uh, doing a, national games on radio for a network called Sports USA. And I remember one year we had uh, we had a, a Florida South Carolina game in the swamp that was so ugly nobody could nobody could score, and the Gamecocks finally won it. Did that go to overtime? I can't remember. Uh, and you I, you had a funny line that I can't repeat on the uh, <laughs> on the on the, on the radio, but basically you said, "Well, you took the headphones off, and we looked at each other and like whew, like wiping our brow." And you go, well, that was ugly with, and I won't repeat the last <laughs> word. I thought it was one of the funniest things my analyst has ever said, because that's exactly what it was. Like, it had a, an exciting ending, but it was three hours of ugly with an exciting twist at the end. And then you and I had a triple overtime game at Arizona State, Oregon, Arizona State. Remember that? Like, that was a blast. I do. Uh, I do. We had a lot of fun doing that. And I know you, you're still doing broadcasting now, except now you're doing it for Colorado. I'm doing all the CU games, and I, I got to tell you, I I had so much fun doing the national radio stuff, Mike. Um, yeah. You know, one, I got to see a lot of buddies, but two, I we always went to great venues, and mm-hmm. we usually saw great games, and we saw great teams, and right. it was just for me a hoot to be able to talk about it and watch it and be there and and be able to see it from a different perspective than I did for all the years on the sideline. And uh, I always called my assistant coaches and I said, you know, I can't believe I didn't get better information from you guys. You could see everything up there. I could see nothing. I think we should have won every game. <laughs> so, But uh, it was always a hoot. And, I, you know, it was fun doing with different broadcasters. Yeah. And, and um, I, you know, it was it was everything I could ever want as a retired coach to be able to do. So it was fun. Well, and, and I have to be careful when I say this because I work with a lot of talented former players as analysts in, in all three sports, football, basketball, baseball. But I've always thought you're going to get such a unique perspective when you work with the former coach. I love working with former coaches. Um, I remember you and I in the booth. And again, it's radio, so people can't see. So you're like tapping my shoulder every time you noticed an unbalanced line. And, you know, it, you're you're thinking like a coach, and you're just seeing the game in a, in a different way. Uh, and then the other thing is, big picture wise, you have the perspective, and this is what I want to tap into as well with you before we get specifically into Colorado. You have the unique perspective of like you know why coaches get fired. You know why some programs are harder to win at than others because you know. You're involved in recruiting when you're a head coach. You're involved in all the ancillary things that a head coach has to do that, quite frankly, a former player never has to worry about. So let's start there. A lot has changed since you and I did games together uh, five, six years ago in terms of where we're at in college football with NIL and the portal, and now the playoff is going to expand. There's just a we are in the most radical change period of college athletics. I know in my lifetime, what do you think about the current state of the game when you watch and you look, and of course now you're right there uh, in the, in the 
thick of it with Colorado as an analyst. What do you make of all the changes that we've undergone? Well, you know, there's two ways to look at this thing, Mike. One is the game itself is played within 120 yards, uh, and it's played by college-age kids. And that hasn't changed. We see some new stuff with a spread, but the game, the preparation, uh, the work, the excitement, the decisions, nothing's changed in the game itself. Everything that's changed has been outside of the game. How you get those players, the perception of, of, uh, of the, really the people that are watching the game, the fan base, um, the, the sort of throwing off the tradition that we all have lived with of college football and what it's supposed to represent. Um, those are the things that have changed. And that's drastic from when I was coaching. Uh, and I, I always like to say, and I really believe this, is I got to coach in the best time of college football ever. Mm. I mean, it was as pure as you can make it. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's, there's always guys doing things wrong and thinking they're right and that kind of stuff. But uh, it was such a great time to coach. So what's going on now and the way you recruit and the, um, the fact that it goes all year round and the way you recruit by, you know, promising or giving or providing money and, and, um, and the portal has changed everything. Trying to maintain a roster, create a roster, it's, um, you know, it just has changed the work outside of that 120 yards drastically. And, and I'm sure if I were in it uh, and solving day-to-day problems, it wouldn't look so drastic. But from the outside, it looks really drastic. And, um, you know, it will survive. I mean, the game's in good shape. But um, the way we view it, the way we think about it has changed. And, and that's bothersome to me a little bit because of what I think we all grew up with and what we all liked so much about college football. Some of that's really changed. If we went back in time, say, 20 years, uh, and 20 years ago, well, let's think about this. We're 2023, so that's what, 1993? So in 1993, you're the head coach at Northwestern. Right, let's go, let's, let's change that. Let's, if we go back 15 years, you're at Colorado. Um, we've heard coaches say, and we're seeing it now with early retirement, there are a lot of coaches that say, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. I want to coach ball and develop young men. I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want to deal with having other coaches poaching my players on a regular basis. Would Gary Barnett 15 years ago be tempted to, to just exit early? Well, I think so because um, I, um, I'm real old school in the, in the standpoint that I got. I coached high school football for 11 years. You know, I didn't go right from college being a graduate assistant getting into the college scene. So I had to sort of learn it. Uh, I mean, I, I, in 1984, I went to the university of Colorado from a little small college in Durango, Colorado. And Fort Lewis, right? Fort Lewis college. And, you know, I really thought I knew, I knew a lot about football and about 
the way it's done and plays and that sort of, I didn't know anything. And so I didn't really start learning the game until 1984 and I was 37, 38 years old. Um, and so I was a teacher. I taught in college. I taught in high school. Um, so I saw myself and still see myself today as a teacher. So if you take that away from me, if you say I can't teach anymore, or if you say it's all about everything but teaching now, then I wouldn't want to be a part of it. I would, mm-hmm. I would probably walk away. I mean, I say that now because we're that far removed from it, but, um, you know, I, to me, being with 18 to 22, 23-year-old young people and uh, taking them from uh, at a period of time when more things happen to them, they go, more, they go through more changes, uh, they grow up more. Uh, and to me, that was what was fun. That The whole thing about it was fun. But what you're doing now is, to me, it's different. And I, I'd have to find a way to separate that. Uh, and still be able to teach in order for me to survive in today's world. The other thing that's fun about coaching is winning. Um, you did a lot of it, and it all started, I guess, and you could talk about how you wound up with Bill McCartney at Colorado, but I'm, I'm guessing a, a phone call of some kind took place, and you get offered the job there. And we talk about a lot of times we remind ourselves that not everybody – is our age, you know, JC and I are in our forties. There are people that listen to this that might be 27 and they don't know that Colorado was once a national power. And you were there as an assistant coach during a national championship, during big eight championships, during elite player after elite player rolling through Boulder, many of whom were from the state of California and other spots across the globe. Um, take us through that, that time frame and because this is going to be the question, and eventually we'll pay it forward to Dion Sanders. This is going to be the question facing uh, Dion and, and Colorado football is how do you get back to that point? So what was the secret sauce for you guys, and how does Colorado get back to that point? <clears throat> well, we were in – when I got there in 84, we were 1-10 in 10 that year, and we were as bad uh, and played as poorly then – as the University of Colorado has played in 2021 and 2022. So this is like cycling back. I mean, we were every bit as poorly coached, every bit as, uh, uh, you know, poorly performed football team as Colorado has been the last two years. So our change had to take place the old fashioned way. We had to get, five or six or seven players every year for four or five years. We had to, um, uh, you know, improve gradually. We went to seven and five and 80, 85. We went to six and six and, and beat Nebraska in 86. We were uh, eight and three in 87, eight and three in 88. And then finally undefeated, and played for the national championship in 89. So it was a, it was a, from our perspective, it was a slow process. We didn't have a portal. We didn't have NIL. Not that it would have changed Colorado much because our NIL situation isn't much different now than it was <laughs> then. And it's, 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 it's on a low level, small level compared to a lot of places, but it was Bill McCartney getting the right coaches in the right spot, being, 
you know, working our fannies off, uh, getting lucky on some players, uh, recruiting, 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 keeping most of the coaches there together for a while. And then, and then it just, ha- we had a cause too. We had Salinesi uh, die in the spring. And so we had a cause for our football team. So uh, it was a lot of hard work that took, you know, it took us, but that's, that's six years, Mike, uh, to mm-hmm. get to where we were a team that people started to really respect. And then from that point on, once you get there uh, and, and you got the right guy in place and, and Bill McCartney and, and his coaches, uh, then we were able to do just what you said. We were as good from 1989 to 1994 through 94. We were as good as any football program in the country. And uh, a lot of that has to do with players. And players bring players. That's what you find is that uh, players recruit. And coaches don't. Coaches recruit to some extent, but players get players. And um, that's what we had going through there. And all of them were going to the NFL. Uh, they were all um, from a hard-nosed program that Bill built. Uh, they played physical football. And those sort of things carry on to the next level carry over to the next level. And that's what happened to us. So we, we built a good reputation there. And then, um, as, as you know, and starting about 2007, it, uh, it just started to decline at a pretty rapid rate. It was the decline. I mean, I know there's a lot to it. There's there always is, but when I think of Colorado at its peak during the time frame you, you referenced again, Colorado's only got so many, four or five star recruits in the state. Right. But I think of all those kids from California, that, that pipeline clearly has not been there for a long, long time. So did, did the recruiting dry up a little bit at that time? Maybe other programs said, well, wait a minute, we can't have Colorado getting all these kids out of Los Angeles and other, like we, we, we got to put a stop to this. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of kids out there. Like, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, five stars, you know, I, I probably can count on one hand the number of five-star guys that we've had go through Colorado mm-hmm. uh, since 1989. Uh, but we had a lot of guys become five stars. Right. So Mac did a great job of developing. You know, we would get potential. For example, Michael Westbrook was not even a recruited athlete because of his uh, attitude at school and things like that, and his performance in school and things like that. But Mac pulled him out of the hallway, brought him to Colorado, disciplined him, kicked him off, suspended him for his freshman year because he wouldn't go to class. And he turned, just went in the football foundation hall of fame. Wow. So, uh, a lot of that was under Mac's, uh, steady hand and the coaches that he had. He had a great group of coaches, I think. 11 of us became head coaches. So it's, it's a combination. It's never just one thing. Uh, I think, um, you know, different coaches emphasize different areas of recruiting. Uh, when I was there, we were Texas, Colorado, California. That's where we recruited. You know, Mac opened up New Orleans. We had a number of Cordell Stewart from New Orleans, a number of Vance Joseph from New Orleans. We had a number of players from New Orleans. We went in there. But that was Bob Simmons going in and recruiting. And and that had more to do with it than anything else. So it's it's a combination of personalities, coaches, where they're comfortable, where they have contacts, 
and then players recruiting other players when they when they come there. So it's it's complicated, um, and but it can all work. It really can. So how how hard is it for you? Um, like I was, I, I did some NFL games the past couple of years with Chad Brown, mm-hmm. uh, and he's still, you know, his heart bleeds that program, and and he he talked to me about how just how difficult it's been to watch the descent of Colorado football. How hard has it been for you to see a once prominent program just struggling to get back to even mediocrity? Well, uh, unless. But the difference is Chad doesn't have to talk about it while it's going on. <laughs> That's right. You know, I got to talk about it while it's going on. That's the hard part is, yeah. is trying to excuse it or trying to cover it up or trying to um, uh, be positive about what may happen on the next play or the next series or the next game. That That's the part that's really challenging. And it, it is hard to watch because – um, you've seen it and you've participated in it at a really high level. And so it is frustrating is what it is. Um, but coaches believe in coaches. And, you know, every coach that's been there, uh, you know, I worked with Mike. When, my, when I went in 2016, Mike McIntyre was there. And um, that was his first – that was his only winning season was – was night 2016. So I thought maybe things were going to change. And then mm-hmm. they just started sliding back down again. So uh, you can't go through the number of coaches and athletic directors that Colorado has gone through without suffering. Yeah. And that's what we've done. We've suffered through the fact that we've had so much change and very little has stayed the same. And um, it, it's, you know, every time you change coaches, you, you change perspectives, you change where you want to recruit, you change, um, you know, how you want to do things. Well, nothing solid gets built. Like I said, it took six years for Mac to get to where he wanted. Nobody's been able to take six years and put it together and create anything that is a momentum building. I think that winning year you mentioned from coach Mac and he won a lot of national coach of the year awards for that season. I think that's the only winning year since you left. In two after two thousand five, two thousand sixteen. That's right. It's yeah. The only one. yeah, I, I mean that that is just a stout. Like I was doing some research on this, and I I knew it was, I knew it's been a rough patch. I didn't, I forgot how rough it was. Like I, I I thought for sure there had to be some more winning years that I just didn't see or remember, but that's it. I mean that is that is. A, a, Look, there's been a lot of prominent programs that have, you know, it's like a roller coaster. You have up periods, you have down periods, but I think Colorado is unique in in that in the fact that the period you mentioned, those six years, there was no program that had more success, um, and yet you look at what it's been since, and that's about as grand a descent as you can have, because in college football, a lot of times, once you make it. You do stay there. We, we see the same people at the top of the polls every year now. It's the biggest complaint I think fans have. It's like, I already know who the top five teams are going to be every year. So pay it forward now. What did you think when you heard the news? Deion Sanders got the job. And, you know, in spite of all the headlines of the roster turnover and everything else, how is he going to turn it around? Because we know 
Dion is a major name, and he has gotten a lot of attention here the last few years during his time at Jackson State and then taking this job. I think it's one of the most fascinating stories in college football that we've had in a while. But all that, once the ball is kicked, that doesn't mean anything. Like You still have to have players, and you still have to coach them up, and you still have to win games. So take me through your, your timeline of how you felt about it and then what you think it's going to take to turn this thing around. Well, I, I think as the search went went on, uh, some decisions had to be made. I, I think traditionally the way you turn programs around in, in this case was, one, could you find a coach that's done it and been there consistently that w- would want to come to Colorado? And the answer to that was no. So then you're going to, well, we're gonna, we, need a, we need a coordinator. We need somebody who – who knows uh, the territory, knows where the bodies are buried, so to speak, at Colorado, um, knows the difficulties of it and can come in and understand it and not get upset because the last three or four coaches have not done that. They've all come in thinking Colorado was like Nebraska or Oklahoma or whatever, and they don't realize what a complicated job Colorado really is. So you want somebody who sort of understands that. And then when you look at the fact that all of a sudden a transfer portal and a new rule change allows you to change your roster overnight, who's the best person to do that? And I think that uh, the person that who's best able to do it was Deion Sanders. I mean, he, he had done this at, at Jackson State. Now, he doesn't have a long history of coaching, but but someone who can – turn a roster, which is what we, we had to have happen. You know, if we didn't have the transfer portal, Mike, this would be another six or seven year project. But now with the transfer portal and more tra- transfer portal than NIL, NIL is a contributing factor to some degree with some kids, but it's the transfer portal that lets you uh, change your roster. And then the rule that says a new coach can Clean out his roster, basically, as long as he's willing to pay those kids that he's moving off the team and pay them their while they're still in school, their scholarship money. Uh, this is unlike anything ever in college football. It's unlike anything in pro football. So it's you have one chance to do this. And the person who was interested and the person who uh, has been doing it or has done it better than anybody else is probably way ahead of everybody else was Dion because he'd gone through it once already. He'd already transferred. I mean, transformed a program through the portal. So uh, the combination, uh, I, I, you know, I think that brings us right to Dion Sanders. Now he has to have substance. You, you can't just do it without substance. And he, he doesn't have a great track record in coaching. What I mean, should say he's done have a long track record in coaching, because uh, he's only been doing it three years. But he's got substance. And and anything you read or watch about him, which everything he does is available on YouTube, you can see everything he does. It speaks and and uh, just speaks of the right thing, you know, of substance. So those two things in combination, uh, the fact that he's done it, the fact that he knows how to use the portal and the two that he's got the substance that it takes to make something like this work. He's still got to make it work. Everybody knows that it's still, 
you know, this we'll talk about what's coming up, but um, he's got a brutal schedule. But in one year, he's changed this entire roster and he's changed the entire attitude of the people in Colorado, specifically the people in Boulder and within the university. It's a completely different feel right now. And you were there, I know, just recently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody, we sold out season tickets. We sold out the spring game, which never been done, with five inches of snow on the ground. Hmm. Uh, you All the uh, uh, stuff in the school stores gone. Everything's gone. One guy whose reputation is, is prestiging and uh, looks like he has the substance to do, to do it has just ignited this fan base. He also hired assistant coaches with substance, which I think was a necessity. I mean, sometimes the best thing to know is what you don't know. You got to, you got to get good play callers in there. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, you know, I know Sean Lewis, who's the offensive coordinator, was the guy who was on Colorado's list to interview for a head coaching position. So it was really interesting to see him be able to, to get Sean to come to Colorado, you know, and, and, um, uh, Charles Kelly uh, has been around a great program and a really solid coach for a, a while now. So he he can at least bring knowledge of that. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's all out there. And uh, can it be turned around as quickly as everybody thinks or a lot of people think? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. As you mentioned, the schedule is brutal. And anybody that's thinking that, you know, that Dion's just going to go in there and go like nine and three in year one is kidding themselves. It's just, that's not a, that's not a possibility at this point. You, you mentioned, so I was just there and it was the first time I've been to to Boulder in about 11, 12 years when I called a Colorado Utah game. And I, that was when it was fresh that Colorado just entered the PAC 12. And I remember calling that game and thinking, this doesn't feel like a PAC 12 game, but it is. And I know sometimes old habits are hard to die, but I'm really curious your thoughts on this, and and maybe you have to be careful what you say on this. Uh, I'll be a little more outspoken about it. I would love to see Colorado back in the Big 12. I don't know if if that's the consensus by the fans or whatnot. you got a beautiful campus, uh, just a a unique place that is – there's just not many others like it. But when you're in that part of the country – and when you think about the history of Colorado football, there's just nothing that vibes to me Pac-12. And we don't know the future of the Pac-12. That's well documented. It just would seem to me like if the possibility comes out there, Colorado, a return to the Big 12 would make a whole lot of sense. But am I am I talking crazy with that assessment? Well, first of all, the, the move to the to the Pac-12, I, I still believe at this point in time, I still believe when it happened that it was a good move. I thought it was a better fit for us. It's enhanced our travel by our, our fan base tremendously. It's changed it drastically. Um, you, you know, I, our, our um, academic perception uh, certainly fits well in the Pac-12. Um, where we recruited, where most of, you know, 40% of our students are from the state of Cal- California. So mm-hmm. it, it makes sense in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of reasons to do it at that time. Now, I think it was a combination of bad luck because you've got a brand new head coach that takes over because uh, uh, Hawk gets fired right before we go into the 
Pac-12. John Emory comes in. John has no head coaching experience, no coordinating experience. And so it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you, you've got to know the whole lay of the land, I think, when you take or have somebody who knows the lay of the land working for you. So um, that we got off to a bad start there. Um, the thing that is going to drive us out of the Pac-12 isn't any of those things. It's the fact that we just can't make enough money in that conference. We're leaving too much on the table by staying in that conference. They did a very poor job of not negotiating a contract with uh, DirecTV. It cost them millions and millions of dollars per school. And I think the way that that we have perceived the way the Pac-12 has done business is poor business and that we can't afford to stay in that any longer, especially UCLA and SC leaving. I think it's very soon Oregon and Washington may be leaving. And what are we left with? And if opportunities are out there knocking on our door saying, hey, you can come back here or go here, for another $30 million per year, it's very difficult to turn that down. And so uh, you said I can get in trouble. I don't think I'll get in any trouble, but uh, you know, I, I think it's, 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 I think it's pretty much a deal that we're going to go there. And, uh, and I'd be surprised is what way I should say that is I'd be surprised if we don't. Yeah. Uh, The only thing it wouldn't is if the PAC 12 media rights deal gets done and it's been almost over a year now before it was supposed to be done uh, and is so good that we can't resist it. And uh, you, you tell me the chances of that happening because <laughs> I don't know what they are. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the profession and I, I still have no idea what's going to happen there because there's a different rumor every week. And as you mentioned, it has been dragging and dragging and dragging. And there's so many other dominoes that are going to fall once that is finally signed, sealed, and delivered. And hanging in the balance are programs like Colorado, like Washington, like Oregon, like Arizona. Uh, we're all just sitting back and waiting, and and nothing nothing has happened uh, still as of yet. We're, we're coming uh, encroaching on the month of July for this season. Uh, Gary, I can't thank you enough. We, we, we could have done a whole segment on the brilliant job you did at Northwestern. I, I, I did a preamble before we had you on. I mean, the Rose Bowl – uh, you know, I was in college at that time, and, and that team still resonates with me and college football fans in general. Like, you had so many people that could care less about Northwestern pulling for Northwestern because of what you were able to do, not just 95, but 96 as well. That's one of the most remarkable coaching jobs that uh, I think we've seen. And, uh, again, it's part of a, a marvelous career. Uh, I really thank you for taking out the time. Anytime you want to uh, do one more in the booth together, I'm, I'm more than happy to sign up for it. I'm I'm in for that as well, Mike. Thanks. Appreciate it very much. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, I look forward to us being in the booth again. I look forward to that too. And I look forward to watching Colorado uh, football and maybe catching some of your, your calls uh, on radio. That should be a lot of fun this season and uh, down the road. Gary, thank you so much. Quick timeout here. When we come back, we'll have the JC5. We will have Five and Dime and a lot of other good stuff to talk about 
here on J.C. and Morgan. Mike here for Elite Roofing and Restoration. Chances are you're a homeowner. You're going to have to have that roof replaced at some point. Could be because of wind or hail damage. Could be because it's just that time the roof is old and you don't want to take any more chances. Go ahead and call Elite Roofing and Restoration. They will take terrific care of you as they have for me over the years. They provide exceptional roofing services. They offer a highly knowledgeable staff on insurance claims for roof repairs and replacements as well as an extensive catalog of materials and colors to ensure your roof looks as good as it performs. So how do you do it? Well, you just start off, you can go to the website, EliteRoofingGA.com. That's EliteRoofingGA.com. Go ahead and fill out the form, get connected with the fine folks at Elite Roofing and Restoration, and they will take care of the rest for you. Elite Roofing and Restoration. Don't settle for second best. All right, welcome back as we continue on the 200th installment of J.C. and Morgan. J.C. Sherbert, Mike Morgan, uh, presented by Blue Delta Jeans, BlueDeltaJeans.com. We'll also get to our mailbag later on as we uh, wrap things up. We didn't get a chance to get to all the emails last week. We'll get to some more of those uh, this time out. J.C., I know you were were just – kind of sitting back and, and, and taking that all in. I mean, Gary's one thing about Gary too. And I remember this from working with him. He ain't one to sugarcoat. Um, he'll just tell you flat out how he feels. And I, you know, even now he's, when you're doing radio for a university, that's always a delicate, uh, balance. I know speaking from experience, but Gary's at a point in his life and his career, he doesn't care. <laughs> they ain't gonna fire Gary Barr. He can say whatever the hell he wants. And uh, I thought there was a whole lot of truth in everything that he said. Yeah, I agree. And, and, I, and I remember their reasons for going into the Pac-12, and and, and they do have a California flavor. And, and culturally, that school is probably, probably you know, a Pac-12 school uh, in a lot of ways, probably more so than than Utah, uh, I would think. Definitely has a um, California vibe, and even but, just hiking. And so many people I met, students were from that state. Yeah, it's just sometimes, man. <laughs> you, 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 I mean, you know, like Miami, uh, of course, going into the ACC. Uh, look at what that's done to them, and, and, and even like a Syracuse and Boston College. It's a, you, you sort of you have a lot in common with those schools. You know, Miami probably thought when they joined the ACC, well, you have two public Ivy schools in UVA and North Carolina. You know, Boston College has got good academics. You know, we're a nice little private school down here. The competition, it's a step up with, with Clemson and Florida State and Virginia Tech in the league. I mean, it, it seems like a no-brainer, but Miami well, Miami needs to be playing in the Orange Bowl, <laughs> which is not possible anymore, and playing in the Big East. They need to play West Virginia and those schools every year. And then that's, that's – uh, it's a be careful what you ask for. Nebraska going into the Big Ten has not been good for them. Um, I can't I can't say that everybody has suffered that's gone into a new league because uh, that's not true. I think uh, for a place like A and M and a place like Missouri, where you know you won't re, you know you 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 have resources and you add the resources of the SEC to it, um, it's been great. You know, I think for some of the teams that have gone into the Sun Belt, it's obviously been great for that league and great for those schools. Um, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll continue to say, I don't think Rutgers and Mar- I don't think Rutgers made a mistake going to the big 10 at all. <laughs> it's the state university of New Jersey. I mean, it, it you know, you, 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 
get into a league where you got resources and apply them. And if they can ever get their act together, you know, they money, will. money, but, money. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, but there are some, some programs like Nebraska and Colorado and Miami. I'll just use those three that, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, and honestly, where, where would Miami have gone if not because the big East went away, but uh, I, you know, I, Nebraska and Colorado, I just, I just remember when that was the game between two of the top, three teams in the country every year and, and a rivalry, you know? Yeah. No, look, the, 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 the heyday of the big 12 was outstanding. Yeah. I mean, it really was. Now you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You're not getting Texas and Oklahoma back, but as I said many times, <clears throat> and we got an email that we'll get to later on this subject as it, as it were, uh, the additions that the big 12 made under this, under the circumstances that they had to act quickly, I thought were all outstanding. You know, BYU, Cincinnati, UCF, these were all smart, calculated moves of uh, of programs that will help this league. But I still think, and I've never, you know, when I was growing up, like on cable access TV, you'd have like the academic bowl and you'd see like different high schools go up against other high schools and you wanted to prove that you were the smartest high school in the smartest district. Why are we so... We you have to have conferences for athletics, but for academics it shouldn't matter. So like Colorado is going to have the same academic standards whether they're in the Pac-12 or the Big 12. Like you're not competing. There's no academic bowl like this week. Colorado in a Pac-12 showdown takes on <laughs> Washington State in the Science Bowl. Uh, throw the records out when these two teams meet and clash. Uh, like the element, the the element chart will have uh no chance of standing up when these two brainiacs go ahead. Like it's it, nobody cares. You, you've got you got Jim Nance call a quiz bowl. They've like uh, yeah, point, and, yeah and Dexter, right. I mean, in his golf voice, when Dexter reaches for the buzzer, this is very big, right? And here. he's there. He's got the science question. It's about it's very good pre eighteen seventy seven history is right right up his alley. <laughs> Like it, 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 you're you're going to be the same academic institute no matter what sports conference you're in. I've never understood this. West but Virginia. Again, I, that's why West Virginia is not in the ACC, which makes no sense. No sense. Yeah. Uh, Pitt is sort of a AAU as I think they just got in the AAU or whatever. Pitt's got good academics and it's a semi-private school and some other stuff. Uh, so they made sense, but. You know, you're telling me you don't want that fan base and and the a top twenty five most winning. I mean, West Virginia University has won more games than a lot of teams uh, through. I mean, they're a top twenty five winning team in football, and you you didn't take them, you know, back when you could have, and you almost didn't take Virginia Tech either because of academics. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the, and this is why I have no sympathy for the ACC at all because they pretend like they're the Big Ten junior and and it's it's they never make the right moves. And so, so then Maryland leaves, right, for the Big Ten, and they panic and took Louisville. Um, Mike, you spent some time in Kentucky. What's the academic reputation at the University of Louisville? I don't know. It's not uh, outstanding. Probably a lot like West Virginia, I but, would but, think. Yeah. But it but doesn't matter. It doesn't you know? matter. If it mattered, it mattered when you wouldn't add West Virginia. But but now it, but now it doesn't matter because you you can add Louisville and then the news that came out last summer the ACC was like 
well, we met about adding West Virginia because we, we thought maybe that would help. Well, you should have done that to begin with, you know. Well, the, the arrogance of the Big Ten over the years, I mean, they've, they've, they've basically, in, in a matter of insinuation, but it's, it's so lightly veiled, what they've said is, well, the, the reason why the SEC is better is because they don't care about academics and we do. Come on. The same players that are signing with Big Ten schools, particularly the Big Ten powers, uh, are the same schools that the SEC recruits and vice versa. Don't don't give me the, well, we don't take those kind of kids. This is not the era of Prop 48 and all that. Like, you're, you're going after the same four or five-star kids. Uh, there's not much difference. And if, 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 and by the way, let me just, as someone who's like neighbors with parents of kids that are applying to SEC schools all over the place, it is damn near impossible to get accepted into the University of Georgia, the University of Florida. Uh, like, there's a ton of SEC schools that do not have to Im- apologize for their academics. It's never been harder to get into these schools. And quite frankly, the success of football has something to do with it, as crazy as that sounds. But like if you're Van, let's just say that, that everything that the Big Ten wants to portray is true, that they are the superior academic conference in terms of schools. Vanderbilt has been in the SEC for a Vanderbilt is almost an Ivy League school, has being in the second uh, to Big Ten academic conference, has that hurt Vanderbilt's reputation academically whatsoever? The answer is no. So, again, why we have to combine those two, just because you're in a league that you don't think has the same amount of academics uh, across the board as the one you're in now, you don't have to lower your standards at all. You can be at any conference. doesn't matter, and you still hold up the academic standards you want to. Uh, again, just, just don't get it, but, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Gary. I, I think, I think I've said this many times on this podcast and I'm surprised he came right out and said it. He thinks it's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen too. I think Colorado will be one of the first schools that, uh, jump ship and goes from the pack to the big 12. I get it, but uh, settles. I'm curious to see who they take with them. And I, I am beyond curious to see because like the, the the latest talk is and i know we got to get to the jc5 yes, speaking of the big 12 yes, there's a yes. hot question in there that we alluded to earlier uh i'm curious to see if arizona and arizona state split up and and my question would be why would you take one and not the other and why would you take colorado and not want to take utah i mm-hmm. i i i i mean heck you got the holy all of a sudden the holy war is a big 12 uh game Right. The Holy Wars, the BYU Utah rivalry, <laughs> um, but uh, it's uh, yeah, you know, the, I mean, so that that's that's I, I'm with you. I think I think the Buffaloes are heading back east, but uh, well, what's going to happen with those Arizona schools? Uh, to me, is fascinating because th- those are sleeping giant type of institutions, Mike. Um, and we know if Arizona. You've been to Arizona State, you, yeah, yeah. If you've been to Arizona, like if you've been to that campus and that, mm-hmm. and, and the Pat Tillman um, facilities that they've kind of uh, yeah. done in his honor. Like I took a whole tour when when Gary and I did that uh, game against Oregon, whatever it was, uh, five six years ago. I was like, wow, this is uh, this is pretty damn impressive. The campus is it's huge, it's fun. Uh, in some ways, it almost has like an SCC vibe with a little bit of a West Coast vibe to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could be a sleeping giant. Um, there's there's no question. All right, I, I know we're over time. 
let's do it. JC five, bring it quick, quick, concise dun, 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 answers dun, dun, dun. to every one of these questions. I, I feel, I feel like I'm going to be as pithy as I've ever been. Mike, the NCAA decided to release a, uh, <laughs> some more guidelines about name image likeness. Basically, uh, the only thing new in there was, Hey, if your state passed a law, uh, and and oh, some of these states did, and, and in those laws, they say it's against the law for the NCA to put you on vac- probation for violating any of their rules. Uh, they say, no, nah, you still got to follow our rules. Um, you know, I, I understand the back and forth, but what's what? Yeah, number one, you can't override state law. Uh, number two, this is just going to lead them, I think, straight back to court, straight back to the Supreme Court, and and. If you've ever seen the terrible movie, The Day After Tomorrow, which is a fascinating but terrible movie, you remember the first, uh, they're down in Antarctica and the ice shelf cracks? That's the first crack if this thing goes to court, in my opinion, uh, in in the the future of the NCAA's governance over college football and probably major college basketball as well. Totally agree. Um, Look, the NCAA has been dunked on in the Supreme Court now to the point where the, 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 the genie's out of the bottle and everybody knows the emperor has no clothes. Like they do not have, they got a hell of a bark, but they no longer have much of a bite and and they just get weaker and weaker and, and less relevant. Uh, Now they don't mind, you know, taking will a a fired will Wade and giving him a show cause like that's their way of flexing their muscle. But when it comes to stuff like this with NIL, there's a reason why Greg Sankey and all the, um, uh, kind of pillars of the sport right now went to Congress in, in D.C. and met. Did, does anything come out of that? I mean, right now, I'm not sure if much comes out of uh, uh, Congress because of the, the situation with government right now. But you had to do it because it, that is the last hope. I, I don't think anybody else can do this. And, and And so you have, I keep going to this term, it is wild, wild west. Um NIL was never meant to be where players are poached and in favor of just higher dollar deals that have nothing to do with NIL. That's not what that's not the spirit of NIL. And I realize many people that are outspoken on this could care less about uh, the health of college athletics. You know, their their whole point for years, they've written columns about it. They've gone on talk shows about it. They 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 bang that drum on how much college athletes are exploited and manipulated. So for them, none of this matters. They like the chaos. But for the people that actually have to work in this in this environment and and try to have some type of stability and consistency, it's a nightmare. And it's a nightmare that's not going away. And the NCAA sending out NIL guidelines, that's the substitute teacher uh, writing the rules on the board. And everybody else keeps throwing paper wads at one another and letting off whoopee cushions and stink bombs. Nothing is going to change, I don't believe, because of anything that just happened. Number two, uh, speaking of the Big 12, all right, so to kind of a two-parter, which new Big 12 team will immediately have success uh, and which one is positioned to have the best success long-term? And we're talking BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and uh, Central Florida. Yeah. I'll, I'll go – short-term, I, I think it's a tie between UCF and BYU, and I think long-term – and our, uh, our our number one UCF fan, uh, John, somewhere is listening out there. I think it's UCF. I, I think UCF 
UCF has done everything the right way. They have just sat there patiently. At times, they've taken their lumps, and they have waited and waited and waited for the right opportunity. The, the fact that UCF would be in the Big 12 years ago seemed like a pipe dream, an absolute pipe dream, silly talk by uh, overly naive fans. But they did everything the right way, and with all the you know all the avalanche of conference migration happening, it just happened to pave the way for a UCF that is attractive in a number of reasons, major market. They now have a brand name. People know who UCF is. Uh, they didn't necessarily know that 10 years ago, that recruiting, um, you know, are there facilities the level of your typical Big 12 school? No. I've been to that stadium. It's nice. No offense. It's not what you're going to see when you go to a TCU or a Baylor or a Kansas State. Um, but they they are passionate about their their sports, and I think now they should be more passionate than ever about it. And I, I think they're going to be in great shape. You know, Houston, Houston's a great addition. This should have been done a long time ago, but it, it's kind of a commuter school and they've got to, they got to figure out how they're going to kind of feel more like Texas, Texas A&M and Baylor. Like they, they've got a ways to go. I believe Cincinnati has been a great story. They'll continue to be, I'm sure, uh, and BYU, it's always got grown bleep men, right? Like 23-year. Eventually, this whole COVID thing is going to be over, right? So we're not going to have six-year guys playing as juniors in college football and 25-year-olds being the starting quarterback. But BYU has already had that because of their two-year mission standard. So BYU is always going to have an advantage there. They're always going to have uh, more mature athletes that will compete well. So I think for the short haul, especially they're going to be they're going to be right there. But I think long term and even short term with the Gus bus, yeah, UCF is in pretty good shape. Yeah, I agree with you there, and and I think and they already are attractive to a lot of recruits in the state of Florida, Mike. That just kind of want to do something different. Um, and now that they're in a Power Five conference and and, the, and a good one, um, they probably. Uh, they can start winning even more recruiting battles. And you know, you know, as well as I do, because of your ties there, that there's tons of talent. Hey, when I, when I grew up there, when I grew up, you, first of all, when I grew up, UCF was a one double a program. Yeah. Florida, Florida state, Miami were all regulars in the top 10 regulars competing for national championships. There are, there's a generation of 17 year old recruits right now that they don't know what it looks like for Florida, Florida state and Miami to be really good. Mm. And they've watched UCF, win some shocking bowl games and they've watched UCF become the toast of the town in the sunshine state. So UCF for a lot of the kids is just as attractive. Yeah. Now, now look, do they have the NIL money? No. Are they going to be able to recruit to the level of Florida, Florida state, Miami? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, the, but they, they still now are on the map and, and can, can definitely be a player, not just in recruiting, but in the portal where a lot of good players are going to wind up at UCF and have. Well, yeah, they come back home uh, to the state and, and you know, in it's central location in the state. So you could dip down to Palm beach just as easily as you can go back up or over to Tampa. I mean, Orlando's got a lot of players as it is Jacksonville. That's number one. And then number two, you know, you, you mentioned the, yeah, so they may not beat Florida, Florida State, Miami head to head on guys. You know that's going to be tough. It could come one day. 
if they're if they start going to the playoff and winning the Big Twelve title, it could come one day. But um, what they're doing is they're keeping really good players from going to like Georgia Tech or in some cases Kentucky and Auburn and Vanderbilt and some of your schools that kind of make a living on saying, okay, this this is the top tier in Florida, but there's so many players. You can go down to this level and get guys that can play at the Power 5 level. And in some cases, the NFL, they, I've noticed lately they stop some of that outward bound traffic to other places. And, um, and, and you can build a great roster that way, no question. So Michigan during their workouts, this is number three, Number three, they're like beat. They are having like during the off season beat Georgia day, and I thought that was interesting because expectations are pretty high in Ann Arbor, coming off two straight trips to the playoff and uh, two straight Big Ten titles. I think I guaranteed on this podcast, Mike. This is episode two hundred uh, that Harbaugh would have Michigan in the playoff within three years. I was wrong. It took five or six, but here they are. They're in the playoff. Uh, for as much crab as he gets, uh, he's a hell of a coach. Uh, so, so, so you start, I started thinking about it. I was like, why? I said, don't poke the bear. Why are you calling out Georgia? You know, that's, that could be dangerous. And, and then I started yeah. thinking on the lines of scrimmage and with what Michigan has back, could they possibly get in a game with a Georgia? And do what they did to Ohio State. I doubt they'll blow them out, but but have have kind of a out physical uh, them. Uh, I have my answer for it, but I want to hear yours first. Well, first of all, you just hit on a key point. Michigan beat Ohio State again, and by the way, if they beat them three years in a row, Ryan Day can start uh, sending out his resume for another job. And Ohio State took Georgia down to the wire. That's that's the best performance against Georgia in two years, even though it was a loss what Ohio State did, uh, the, the Alabama game was standing, obviously Alabama won in 2021. That just shows you the gap is not that wide, okay? I mean, the way Michigan recruits, the way Michigan is playing, the, the mojo that they have now, and any program, this is the way it typically works in college football. You don't just have that breakout year and then win the national championship and like you, you got to take some lumps. You got to have some heartbreaking losses. So Michigan was humbled year after year after year by Ohio State. Then they finally break through. Well, then they're humbled in the playoff. But at some point, yeah, there's there's no question. Michigan, uh, they could very well have that breakthrough year where they beat Ohio State and then win two in a playoff. And then eventually, of course, you'd have to win more than two. But. I, I I don't think that's too far fetched. Now poking the bear in the zoo. I don't know if I'm a big fan of that. Jim Harbaugh, who again we like on this podcast, and back when it was not going so well, we defended on this podcast and thought it'd be a stupid idea to fire him when many people wanted to. I, I like Jim. There's a little bit of meathead in him. He's a bright guy, but there's a little bit of meathead in him that 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 comes out every now and then, which I think is good for college football. Like. How many, How often do we talk about we miss the personalities? We're going to miss the Mike Leach personality. We miss the Steve Spurriers of the world. We need some guys that rub people the wrong way. Jim is brilliant at rubbing people the wrong way. Absolutely. Um, so do I think it's the wisest move to call out Georgia? Nah, not necessarily, but you know what? I don't think it causes much harm either, and I think it's a fun thing for us to talk about. Absolutely, especially here in the offseason. I that matchup would be will be interesting to me. My my thought on it is if they did play that yes, Michigan could match Georgia's physicality to a certain extent, 
But I, I think the difference, just like the difference with TCU playing Michigan, uh, is the speed. I, I just, you know, that's then that's the SEC. Uh, people ask, kind of, everybody's got big guys. Everybody's got, you know, fast receivers and, and good running backs. And, you know, heck, the Big Ten schools probably have better offensive lines than um, than the SEC schools top to bottom. But when you're big and fast, <laughs> that that's tough. And that's that's that monstrous defense that Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp and Glenn Schumann and, you know, name your Georgia assistant there. Uh, are building in Athens. And, and to me, that would be very challenging for, um, you know, say a, a J.J. McCarthy and Blake Corum, unless, you know, Georgia's just getting blown off the ball. Uh, but I just don't see that happening uh, in any kind of situation like that uh, in, in a potential uh, matchup. So the the only thing I'll say about know, Georgia is this. It, at some point, we're going to find out if they do miss Stetson Bennett. Yeah. Say what you want about that dude. Like he was pretty clutch. And whenever you roll out a new quarterback, I don't care if he's four or five stars, there's still the element of the unknown. Just ask Clemson after DJ Uyunglele. That didn't exactly pan out. It set Clemson back. Alabama, yeah. Alabama's a little bit concerned about quarterback. That's why they hit the portal as late as they did at that position, because they know they don't have a Bryce Young right now on their roster. So all the, that that opens up the door to a little bit of vulnerability because everything else Georgia has is completely stacked and there's no reason to think they're not going to be outstanding at every other position. You know, the over-under odds just came out at Caesars, 11.5 for Georgia. So basically, if you go under, you're betting on what? That they either get a shocking loss, which I don't think many people are going to forecast, or they lose at Tennessee in November. That's that's it. That's that's what you're that's what you're betting on if you're thinking to take the under. But that's how staggeringly good Georgia is, where the over under is eleven and a half. That's something else, Mike. That's something else. Something else. Uh, All right, number four. LSU athletic director Scott Woodward. Uh and look, we we and I, I agree with you, and we we've talked about this, Mike, a lot. Um you know, it doesn't all. It doesn't matter who your AD is. A lot of times, coaches gravitate uh, to wherever, or whatever, um, and and that's true. I think a lot of times, but I think this guy, <laughs> I got to give him some credit, man. Um, I think he does make a difference because uh, he hired. You know, every everything you ever heard about Chris Peterson when he was at Boise was no way he's taking another job, no way he's leaving, no way he's doing that. Well, guess who hired him at the University of Washington? Scott Wilbur. He goes to A&M. You know, at the time, it's so rare to get a sitting head coach from another Power 5 school. I know it's happened a lot more lately. Uh, just goes and takes and makes Jimbo Fisher the $75 million man. They also hire Buzz Williams in men's basketball, who I think is one of the top coaches in the country. Uh, Jim Schlossnagel takes the baseball job. So then it's off to LSU. And all he's done since he's been there is – Oh, hire Brian Kelly, the winningest coach in Notre Dame football history from Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, they hired Kim Mulkey for Baylor in women's basketball. That results in an instant national title. Uh, and then that Jay Johnson search wasn't necessarily one that everybody, we kind of took some twists and turns, mm-hmm. uh, but they hire him. And guess what? LSU is your 2000 and uh, for the first time since 09. Sounds weird to say it. It's been that long. LSU's the 2023 national champion in baseball too. 
So, yeah. you know, women's basketball, natty, baseball, natty. Uh, Brian Kelly immediately wins the SEC West. I know Matt McMahon had a tough year on the hardwood, but there was no yep. other school in the country that replaced 13 guys. Right. The They'll roster. be good. Matt, and he's they a will good be coach. Good. Yeah. They'll be good there, too. Uh, and you're right. Uh, uh, Johnson was not the first choice on the baseball side. Um, there are a lot of people that thought, well, we're LSU. We can get anybody who we want. And as I always point out, that's rarely the case. But they made a, a brilliant pivot, and they got a guy who does not have any ties to the region or anything else. But he he did a terrific job out west and knew what it was going to take. He's a very impressive coach. I've talked to him a number of times doing their games. Um, and to have that type of return on investment, well, they hadn't won a national title in baseball since 09. Incredible. Now, look. I've always said this about quote unquote big game hunting. It's a lot easier to go big game hunting when you're doing LSU versus Mississippi state. Okay. Yeah. It just is. So Scott Woodward has the, he, and, but he's earned that job. Like he, as you pointed out. Uh, yeah. He, nobody in the business thought Peterson was ever leaving boys. That's state right. And he got that's right. Done. And he got him. Yeah. Um, now the Jimbo Fisher deal. <laughs> We're going to see whether or not that turns out being great or not, but still that's who everybody wanted. And he went out and he got him. you know, he found the right boosters. Money's no object. Get that boy in here. And they did it. Okay. So yes, I'm with you. Uh, He's on like a Jeremy Foley type run right now. Yes. Without the Zucker must champ. Right. I mean, he's killing it. If they go ahead and McMahon does and look, LSU basketball is bipolar. Yeah, they can be like really good and have just ridiculous talent just by recruiting that state. And they've also hit the doldrums a couple of times now. But I think they'll be back. They'll be relevant. Football's not going in. Remember, now there are a lot of people critical of that Brian Kelly hire. There are a lot of people critical after they lost to Florida State in week one. Uh, If you listen to this podcast, I'm like, you guys are crazy. That's an outstanding hire. And so what, it wasn't his fault they lost to Florida State. The culture, I love Coach Joe, but it rotted in Baton Rouge. It just did. And he had to go in there right away, and they wind up winning the West in year one? Come on, man. He, outstanding hire there. Um, no, I'm with you. Scott Woodward right now is on a, he's on a roll. He is, yes, he has the wallet that says BMF. All right, so now we're going to go, as we kind of, Kind of like to do all the JC five. I kind of like a little geographic diversity. Virginia and Virginia Tech, and this is just a brief because I, I, you know, we could probably dig into a million different reasons why these two programs are struggling at the same time. Virginia's kind of been in the wilderness for a while, but this downfall from Virginia Tech, who I, you know, and and we we did the podcast back then when Justin Fuente was hired. And it looked after his first year, he won the division and 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 played Clemson to the wire. It looked like they were kind of on their way. He was that type of coach that sort of like Frank Beamer, he's going to try to go find players and all that. The bottom falls out there. You know, they make a hire in Brent Pry that, you know, I know he's well-liked and he's a hokey and, and all that, but boy, they were bad last season. Virginia was, was almost worse. They didn't play each other because unfortunately the, the, the shooting that happened in, in Charlottesville, but, Man, you know, these programs, when they've wanted to be, especially Tech, and at times Virginia during the Sean Moore era and and, and briefly when Matt Schwab was there, I mean, th- th- they they can be good. There's great talent in the state of Virginia, but 
uh, they're on some hard times right now. It's all, it almost kind of reminds me of Oregon and Oregon state in the eighties before, yeah. you know, Rich Brooks kind of <laughs> built the ducks. It's, it's a great point. It's, it's kind of sad to see. I was in Charlottesville, which again, another beautiful college campus and town. And, um, there is some history there. I had the Virginia Miami game that set college football offense back about a century and a half. Um, there was not a single touchdown scored in regulation. It was just a field goal turnover fest. And eventually Miami eked it out in like the second or third overtime. It's, I can't remember. And sometimes I don't want to, um, but Virginia offensively was just woeful. Just, just like I couldn't understand what they were doing. So uh, as we know, there's no more four or five year rebuilds when you're, when you're a new coach, get, get some, get some market improvement in year two. Uh, that's all I would say. Yeah, I, I think so too, for both those guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, Hokies to me, they're, they're kind of what I kind of pull for them. Cause I used to do the Virginia tech website for 24 seven. Uh, I love their fans and, you know, beautiful stadium up there. They've got tradition. And you don't talk about a school that thinks they should win every single game. They do. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's uh high water that, mark. That standard's gonna be tough. So uh yeah, there you go, your high water mark again. So that kind of wraps up the JC five. Love it. Uh we have a mailbag mailbag segment we want to get to before we close yeah, it out let's with get some Hollywood. Quick, sure. Yeah, let's get to a quick mailbag presented by Synergy Release Sports.com. Uh, terrific, terrific care there by Dr. Hatrack and his phenomenal staff. I speak from experience. If you're in Atlanta or anywhere, really, p- people go from all over the place to check them out. If you've got uh, back pain, shoulder pain, knee pain, uh, there's a lot of doctors out there that will give you bad advice and give you bad care. That's not the case. You can even check out their website on our website, jcnmorgan.com. Their website is Synergy Release Sports.com. Uh, from Vic from Memphis, what's What's your question? The AAC has the most schools that played in the New Year's Six Bowl games in any other G5 conference. With Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF leaving, can the AAC maintain this? Uh, I hate to say it. I know Mike Oresco for years and years wanted to be known as the Power Six. Now he's like, you know, let's let's just change. Let's let's not have that power designation um, because he realizes, and I think most people realize. They're about to have a hell of a dip. Uh, they, they really are. They, they I, I think the Sun Belt is now the top Group 5 league. I'm all about the Fun Belt. Um, UAB, Charlotte, FAU, North Texas, Rice, UTSA. That's what you're – those are now the new powers, I guess, of the, um, of the American – Mm-hmm. Oh, you still have Tulane and Memphis left, and uh, that's right. Uh, for, you know, for how, some, yeah, uh, for how long we'll know. But, yeah. yeah, I mean it's uh, and look, all these programs like like Charlotte, like UAB has a nice new stadium after they almost killed the program. They've got a chance. Charlotte's got a lot of resources, a lot of students. They're a lot like a young UCF. Uh, FAU certainly had success, and Tom Herman's there now. Yep. Um, so uh, I guess, uh, and it's in Boca, uh, you know, North Texas has been okay. Rice, Rice is, uh, Rice, Rice needs some help. Rice uh, is one and, of the most difficult jobs, if not the ooh, most difficult job yeah, in Division One. They, they, uh, they, they got a good, uh, they got a chance in baseball, but that's about it. And then UTSA actually had a, uh, 
It's a fun a little pretty program. Good, pretty good run. The Roadrunners in bowl games and stuff. So of those, I would I would say FAU or UTSA um, to me because I don't know how Trent Dilfer is going to do at UAB. I, uh, but I, so I would I would not go with them. I would go with uh, FAU or UTSA. And, and to the second part of your question, you said uh, which one will have the best first season. Uh, one other one from Harry here in Atlanta. What does the AAU, the Association of American Universities, really mean for college football? Does it really have impact on the power conference's future realignment? This is kind of what we talked about earlier with Colorado and why they you know, wanted to go to the PAC and why certain programs wanted to go to the Big Ten when it's clearly not a fit. To the school presidents, it matters. To the ADs, to the football coaches, I don't think they could care less. I think they just want what's best the best fit for their program. And honestly, to your for your typical fan and, and student, I, I, I don't know if you, you want to go to a university that has a good reputation academically where somebody says, hey, this is a good university. Like that, that's that's it. And I'm starting to <laughs> starting to be a little more cynical in general, JC, about what colleges and universities even stand like. What are you learning there these days? And what is what does yeah. your diploma really mean? Like I, I used to think that you had to go to college and I'm, look, I'm very proud that I did and I got a degree and all that other good stuff. But uh, I don't know if what the AAU means to your typical uh, student. Um, and in terms of its effect on the, re- I, I think the effect on the realignment is about to decline because yeah, the I- money is so great that you can't turn down tens of millions of dollars just because you feel like, well, this is not quite the same status I'm going to have in this conference uh, with my football team. Yeah, I'm with you there. And it's amazing that, you know, colleges these days, the one, the one thing you always hear is uh, inclusiveness, inclusiveness, inclusiveness. And they, they tend to take a very exclusive outlook (laughs) <laughs> when, when it comes to things like the AAU, it, it's kind of a, no a catch twenty two. But uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to matter uh, anymore. I think it did. I, I think with the with with the the earlier round of ACC expansion at the beginning of the decade, and 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 with um, the Big Ten's expansion. I mean, I, you know, you always heard those two conferences. You when they're looking to expand, they won't, they won't. Add, they, that that AAU membership's key, but. I think right now it's a dead dead point. I think it's just uh, it just kind of depends on uh, which way the the tectonic plates shift as to what schools end up where, and um, I think they're going to look at brand and look at geography and all that good stuff uh, to maximize the uh, the income that they can get uh, off the sport. Agreed. Um, last one, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, Danny in Alcoa, which is not far from Knoxville. Uh, Danny was the one who thought we talked a little too much about the submarine. Uh, he's probably right. <laughs> he's probably right. He's probably I'll right. Look, every, yeah. every now and then we take a detour. Uh, but we, we've we've stayed away from that story. But man, that air pressure. Could you? Uh, okay, nope. We're not going back there. Um, the uh, he just wanted to basically our thoughts on Tennessee this year. I'll just say real quick, Danny, you're not going to like this either. I'm not down on Tennessee by any stretch. But I look at what they lost, two NFL wide receivers and an NFL quarterback in Hendon Hooker, who, when he was healthy, was as good a passer in college football last year. If he doesn't get hurt, he's certainly in New York for the Heisman Trophy uh, ceremony. 
Joe Milton, we know he can throw the ball a thousand miles. I'm not expecting Joe Milton to be as good as Hendon Hooker was last year. I don't think that's fair, quite frankly, to Joe Milton. And he's not going to have the same wide receivers that Hendon Hooker did. They lost some they lost some pretty good pieces on that offense a year ago. And defensive coordinators have had a little more time to figure out, okay, what is how do we scheme up against this offense that seemingly has like five different plays, but they all work because the wide receivers line up outside the numbers and it, like they just had a formula that very few teams have been able to stop the last couple of years. I, I think Tennessee could take a little bit of a step back in 2023. It's, it's not, not to say that Tennessee is uh, going to be irrelevant or going to have a major downslide. It could be where they take a step back in 2023 and they're even better in 2024, but that's just my, my opinion right now. Georgia is going to be the beast of the East and I'm not so sure Tennessee is a lock for second in that division. I think that's a fair assumption. I, I think that, you know, Tennessee, one thing people didn't talk about last year is they had a veteran offensive line, uh, including Darnell Wright, who is a first-round pick of the Bears, and who mm-hmm. my understanding is he's going to start for the Bears this year. Uh, the Bears. Anything uh, to get that X in it. Exactly. Have to do it. Um, and, you know, how, how they got some dudes behind them because the, they left some good off. Pruitt left some good offensive linemen there. Uh, with their skill guys, I'm not, I'm not necessarily as worried about losing Tillman and Hyatt, uh, you know, because I think they got some guys behind them that are really good. But but the question becomes, you know, Cedric Tillman was a big play waiting to happen. Jalen Hyatt would just run straight past your defense. Where 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 is your Jalen Hyatt? Where's your deep threat? Because that that if you stop everything else, they would throw it over the top, and Hooker could do it. Uh, and Milton's got the arm to do it. I think Joe Milton played really, really well uh, after Hooker got hurt uh, against Vanderbilt and Clemson. And keep in mind, Tennessee outscored those two teams 87 to 14. So mm-hmm. their defense played after that South Carolina game, Tennessee's defense gave up a touchdown per game. Um, and that's that's the other question. Can they fix what was wrong on that side of the ball, particularly pass defense-wise? Um because teams that were clicking in the passing game were the one team that the, you know, the teams that beat them, which was only two, uh, South Carolina and Georgia, both Stetson Bennett was going downfield. Spencer Rattler was going downfield in both those games. So can you tighten that up? And, and against Alabama too, you know, they won the game, but they gave up, you know, 49 points and Alabama was able to get behind the secondary and, and all that. So that, those are my questions, but I think it's a very fair uh, assessment of Tennessee and uh, we'll see what happens. They, we're going to know a little bit about them by week three because they go to the swamp where they haven't had much success. <laughs> uh, they also play the, the UTSA Roadrunners at home in an intriguing mm, game. Uh, like and that. then South Carolina comes in the end of September. So, mm. you you know, they open with Virginia in Nashville. Um, they should roll them pretty good. They should roll Austin P. But then at Florida, UTSA, South Carolina, you get through those five, then you've got an off week. Then A&M comes to Knoxville. You go to Bryant-Denny. You go to Kroger Field. So you get it's like a 5-3, uh, and then it's the Georgia game. So so that's kind of the, those are kind of the chunks of the season. But I, I think we'll learn a lot about Tennessee in those five. If we're both wrong, and somehow Tennessee is even better than they were a year ago, they do have Georgia at home. I mean, they, all of a sudden the, that becomes one of the games of the year if – 
yeah. that happens. It's the week before Thanksgiving, too. So if anybody's ever been to Knoxville or East Tennessee, that time of the year, it's just a little bit colder up there nippy. than it is in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Little, <laughs> in those nippy. mountains. Sometimes. Yeah, so. Sometimes. So uh, the snow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that that could be uh that could be very interesting. Again, you can uh, email us go on to the website jcnmorgan.com uh as we're doing more and more things there and we've got the mailbag there. It's on the right-hand side. Always love your questions, your comments and we will read uh most of them on the air. Okay. Time for the five and dime, the remote droppers, the movies that come on you can't help but watch uh or it could be neither. You don't really like the movie and you don't care to watch it. Five, a nickel means you've seen it at least five times. A dime is 10 or neither. Maybe it's just not for you. How do we pick these? Sometimes it's just whatever pops on, and I happen to notice. So all three of these movies were on this week or the last couple weeks at one time or another. I was like, that'd be a good one for the five and dime. Uh, American Gangster was on VH1 last night. Remember when VH1 played videos? Um, (laughs) I can't believe we're saying that because – yeah, yeah. We started saying that about MTV about 15 years ago, and now we're saying about VH1. About VH1. So we went from like, you know, wham, the wake me up before you go-go video, to now it's uh, American Gangster. Boy, the times they are changing. Um, what is this for you, JC? Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe. It came out in 2006. Dimer. Uh, Denzel... Uh... In that, that was Denzel. He's kind of like Tom Cruise in that he always kind of plays he's the cocky. same guy. It's always and Tom cocky, Hanks. Yeah, but always guy. really good. But 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 he does it with enough nuance mm-hmm. to where you you do see the distinction in the characters and uh and that was that was one of his best because I, I on the the one scene where he just is sitting at the diner and pours the the, the sugar out and you know the scene. Uh, is unbelievable, and then 20%. that whole story is good. And Russell Crowe kind of had a wasn't it was it was good acting in his part too because he was kind of a diminished sort of more of a cerebral role for him, which um, which he can do. And so I, I enjoyed that movie, and I'm I have to say it's a dimer for me. Probably not quite twenty, but uh, I'm 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 definitely in double digits. Uh, I'm right there with you. It is a dimer, I, I, right around ten. I um. I made a mistake. <laughs> you know me. When I see a movie based on a true story, I got a deep dive it. I was disappointed to find out that the overwhelming majority of stuff in this movie is not accurate. Okay. Um, everything from the, the character that Denzel portrays, Frank Lucas, like he wasn't this. Like the way Denzel does it, it's almost like the anti-hero, you know, like Tony Soprano. Like you're kind of pulling for him in a weird way. Um, he's very eloquent. He's smooth. He's debonair, which is all the things we've come to expect from a Denzel performance. But in real life, that wasn't Frank Lucas. Um, and even like little things, like Russell Crowe's character. Uh, one of the storylines is he's he's got a a custody case battling his his ex-wife. Well, he, did, he never had a child, so that was. Ah. <laughs> so he was upset about that. He's like, I don't even have a child. What are you saying? Like, I had a bitter custody dispute. Um, there's a lot of things that are just not. They almost make Lucas look like this brilliant criminal who was way ahead of his time. And it, that's, again, 
there's there's a ton of just inaccurate. If you can see past that and just take the movie for itself and not worry about the fact that um, it's it's remar- a lot of dramatic license, then yes, because the, the performances by Denzel and Russell Crowe, for me, two of the best actors of our uh, time. Uh, and, the, and the difference is Russell Crowe, who was like the ultimate bad you-know-what in Gladiator, plays a lot of roles of vulnerability. I thought his best role was in The Insider, a, tr- a, a true story movie that's actually pretty accurate on a scientist of, out of Kentucky who fights big tobacco, the 60-minute story that was pulled off the air because of a threat of litigation. And he is a he plays a vulnerable in this movie. He plays a vulnerable guy. He's not a, he's not a, like a like a real tough cop. He's a vulnerable cop who's an honest guy who could have took, stolen a million dollars to found drug money, but instead turns it in uh, almost like the Serpico story with, with Pacino decades before it. So I, I love I love the performances and the movie as well. The movie almost didn't get made. It was supposed to be made by directed by the guy who directed Training Day. Um, and then that didn't work out. It wound up finally, it became a, uh, a Ridley Scott movie and Ridley Scott, who's done a lot of, uh, uh, great movies over the years. We don't have time to get into all that, but anyway, uh, it's a dimer, but a little bit disappointed to know just how inaccurate it was on the actual, uh, true story. By the way, Josh Brolin in that movie as detective Trupo. Awesome performance. Dude, Josh Brolin can freaking act his butt off, man. He really, I think he's good. I mean, That's the dude that was in the Goonies. Yeah. He was uh he was W in the, the Oliver Stone Bush movie. He yeah, was uh, and No Country for Old Men is one of my favorites, and he's brilliant in that film. And he's uh he's a Marvel villain. He's well, the, you know, I don't watch the, those, but I'll take your word. The, for he's it. the depressed guy. I don't you know everybody everybody make fun of me and Mike. I'm going to say he's the depressed villain in the Marvel movies because I don't know what his name is. <laughs> I, if if uh, if our oldest one or young, our youngest one was in, in shouting distance, I'd probably get it from him. But uh, it's the one that talks like this. It's I am. He says, I am inevitable. Who, who is that, honey? In, in the Marvel movies, the, the villain. The gallery now. I am inevitable. That guy. Oh, Thanos. Thanos. Okay. And Josh Brolin is Thanos. So Thanos. That's a hell. Hey, he's good at things. Oh, he, no, he's a the, he's a great actor. He's you know? look. He's uh, he's he's he was in. Uh, I didn't like the Wall Street sequel, but he's in that. Yeah, a big role in that movie. Money never sleeps. So Money never sleeps. Um, and by the way, the uh, the Frank Lucas was the right hand man of the Harlem mob boss Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson. JC, Bumpy if we Johnson. ever give you a nickname, I want it to be Bumpy Sherbert. I just Bumpy. think that has a nice ring to it. I kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, another one I saw recently, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, another Judd Apatow comedy. What is Forgetting Sarah Marshall for you? It's a, it's about a fiber. Um, I That's where I kind of developed my infatuation for Mila Kunis. Uh, yeah, in that I one. think a lot of people did. Uh, I was I like, know just stay was. in Hawaii, you moron. I'm like, she is, <laughs> you're upgrading, bro. You're upgrading. What are you doing? Just stay there. What are you, what are you, you're an idiot. I, but anyway. I, I didn't know who she, I never watched the 70s show. So I had no ah. idea who Mila Kunis was. It's like, who is this? And yeah, she's terrific in it. Um, uh, what's his name that plays the, the main character? 
he's great. He's great in everything. He's in all the Apatow movies. Yeah, and, Ryan Ryan Reynolds. No, 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 oh, no. Is that Ryan? No, 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 no. Okay, not, I'm an idiot here. I'm, I'm looking it up, man. Ryan Reynolds is Ryan like Reynolds. Uh, I'm an heartthrob. Idiot. Jason. No, you're, uh, no. Paul no, Rudd. You're right. Paul Rudd. No, not no, 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 not Paul Rudd. He's also Jason in a lot Siegel. of Apatow. Jason Siegel. Jason. He's really good in this. He's really good in a lot of stuff, actually. And he's in a, he's in so many. This is actually a surprise dimer for me. It it's a really simple movie. Oh yeah, this guy. I, he had a bad picture here up on the internet. Yeah, I know who this guy is. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, he's he's really good in in everything. Um, but yeah, when this is on, I can't. First off, I love uh, movies. It's got a great setting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're in freaking Hawaii. So what's no, not no. to like about that? Uh, some good performances outside of the main three characters. So yeah, it's it's a funny. Just lighthearted movie, and it's good. And, you know, anybody who's ever been through, like, a tough breakup or, uh, God forbid, you had someone like uh, that hussy who was cheating on our man, uh, Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you've, if you've gone through that, if you have a friend who's gone through that, that is just debilitating. So you felt for him. and um, But there's a lot of funny uh, parts, and yet the plot doesn't just completely go off the rails like a lot of comedy. So I'll I'll go I'll go dimer on that. And the last one before we sign off today, the social network. Below a fiver. I enjoyed the movie, but below. Uh, yeah. And and it's I, I enjoy uh who's the actor that plays Mark Zuckerberg? I enjoy his work. Um I only know him from this movie, but he was he was terrific in it. Yeah, he, he's done a lot of different things. And he has kind of like he has a very similar acting style to this Jesse other guy. Eisenberg. It's Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg, Eisenberg, and then the, there's a, another guy that was in. Uh, uh, well, Andrew Garfield's been in all the the Marvel movies too, right? He wears a cape. Is he Spider Man? I he think so. Aquaman, um, Hot Dog Man, what, what's Super. Right? So who is in Super? The, the guy from Super Bad, uh, Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah and Jesse Eisenberg have extremely similar acting styles. They're kind of that uh, millennial, understated, almost like an old-school Ethan Hawke, but not kind of deal. Anyway, mm. uh, so so I, I like I, I like their styles of acting, but, um, you know, I think as time went on and Facebook sort of became what it became, um, which I, I probably don't have the problems with Facebook that others do, I, I, I think, they should have stuck to their guns and just been like a a free for all exchange of ideas and drive traffic to everybody, uh, like they were going to do. But then they they kind of anyway. My point is and they decided <laughs> to get involved in elections and censoring yeah, news. Yeah. As I, as I, you know, yeah, it was just like, hey, not you know, exactly what we thought we signed up for. Yeah, Facebook. I mean, and, and and you know, and then I don't know. They've done some things well, just dealing with uh, Instagram lately, like that. Uh, you know, like they started a program where, you know, they'd pay, they'd pay creators a little bonus for, for reels. Cause they wanted a lot of reels. Well, then they stopped it, you know? And I'm like, you know, man, I mean, I'm not going to miss the 60 bucks a month, but I mean, you know, it did motivate me a little bit to do more reels. And then now you got all your reels you want. And anyway, I think Facebook sucks. And so that's why I don't watch it anymore, but it is a good story and a good movie. So it's less than uh but it's still less than a fiver for me. It, it, it's a, it's a nickel. It's a fiver for me because the performances are so good. Justin yeah. Timberlake's outstanding. He plays the guy who created Napster, Sean Parker. He's a great actor. He I mean, really people, is. People don't, people don't, people, don't, people never, as far as great entertainers of our time, 
Uh, you know, I think obviously we've got Taylor Swift, uh, who's going to have to be up there, but as far as just being so versatile and good at everything he does, Justin Timberlake does not get enough credit. He can actually act. I'd never yes. thought I would say that. I didn't want to like him as an actor, I, you know, <laughs> no, boy band guy. Come on, don't waste my time. No, he can actually act. and He's really good in this movie. This is an Aaron Sorkin film. It's right up his alley. Mr. West Wing himself. Um, the soundtrack is by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, who I'm shockingly a fan of. Um, I thought Pretty Hate Machine was a revolutionary album. That's a whole other Hell discussion. Still um, love it. Yeah, but but no, this is like the the movie just flows. Now again, I did a deep dive. There's a lot of inaccuracies in this movie, and Eisenberg did not like it because he it it kind of makes him look like an ASS, uh, and maybe he is an ASS. I don't know, but um, the I I enjoyed it. I I I I saw it in the theater when it came out, and when it's on cable, yeah, I, for me it's it's a nickel, and I I am a fan. So that's three movies that we all actually like. We need to find a couple that suck next week. Yeah, um, we, it was too positive this <laughs> too week. Too positive, man. yeah. I didn't I get got to tear to, in anything. I, I got a couple. I you know I, I got a couple that uh, may. Uh, I don't know. You know, sometimes I worry if I if I bring out like a movie that I really like that's like a guilty pleasure that no, that's not very popular that nobody well, will know it. If and it's make something that you me, catch, you know? if it's something you catch on cable a lot, right? Yeah. Or if it's on net, like it doesn't have to be one that we all like. These are movies that, again, for whatever, if they're airing a bunch, chances are a lot of people do like it. There's yeah, a lot of movies like, that air a lot that I'm like, I would never watch this. Like I think the day after tomorrow is a terrible movie. Okay, never saw it, uh, but I'll watch it if it's on because of the uh, the Dennis Quaid. Okay. Is that it? It's the global warming movie. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, oh, what, what that other guy's in it too? Um, uh, oh, uh, shoot! Uh, the Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal. I like Jake That's Gyllenhaal. It. Yeah, I mean, he's got guy. a decent cast, but it's. Yeah. Uh, no, I've never uh, seen it. It's it's well, I mean, basically, it's the the whole world floods and okay, uh, the, sure. the, a new ice age is ushered in, and everybody has to evacuate to Mexico. And uh, he goes and finds his kid who's in New York City, and, and, and it, it's about the same people that made it. You lost me. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is not going to reach nickel or dime status. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the same people that made Independence Day. So there's all that that, that kind of just kind of big sweeping disaster. Okay, yeah, there's a market the, for that. With the, with the you know, so but it's a horrid, horrid movie. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, unlike Independence Day, which I enjoyed. But uh, it, okay. I'll still watch it because of the. You know, well, maybe we'll throw that on there next week. Statue of Liberty comes washing ashore and all that. So sure, that could happen. Yeah, uh, why not? Why not? You know, people thought it would happen in 1984. Then you had, um, yeah, you had like Leonard Nimoy films when we were kids, telling everybody that there's the world is going to freeze. It wasn't global warming? We, we the world, the Earth was going to freeze, and we were going to have another ice age. That's what people were scared of back in like the early 80s. Um, and there's been millions of movies and books written about how. Uh, the world's going to be destroyed and combustible and everything else in 84, 92, 2006, 2011, mm. 2025. Um, so one day that will all be correct. Wow. What a number 200. We have covered a lot. Our thanks again to Gary Barnett for joining us. 
And uh, our thanks again to all of you. Again, we're not wearing tuxedos, but it is kind of a special landmark to hit 200 podcasts. And we really appreciate all of you that have um, uh, take uh, have been downloading us. We know there are a lot of options out there. We now have the website, jcnmorgan.com, which is interactive. We'd love to have you check that out. Um, and we just, we've got more and more things in the hopper coming down the road. So we're, we're far from stopping uh, the growth process here and hope you'll continue to be along for the ride. JC, always enjoyed it, my friend. Thanks, Mike. Thanks uh, to Coach Barnett, uh, Gary Barnett, for joining us. And uh, it was a heck of a 200th episode, man. Uh, so hopefully uh, here's to 200 more. We wait for 201. Uh, everybody enjoy the 4th of July holiday. Congratulations again to LSU baseball winning another national championship. For JC, it's Mike saying so long. We'll see you soon.